Welcome to episode number 19 in the EAE podcast series. I'm Laura Rumbly, your host and the Associate Director for Knowledge Development and Research at the EAE. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are publishing this episode in June 2021 with our eyes on the annual observance later this month of World Refugee Day. As mandated by the United Nations, World Refugee Day falls each year on June 20th. The theme for this year is Together We Heal, Learn, and Shine. For those of us working in higher education, one of the most important and exciting ways that we see individuals learning and shining is by securing access to high quality and relevant educational opportunities that support learners' aspirations to enhance their lives. The questions surrounding the needs and experiences of students of refugee background are a central interest of our guest for this episode. Bernhard Streitwieser is an Associate Professor of International Education and International Affairs at the George Washington University in Washington, DC. He both conducts research and teaches a graduate course on the global challenges precisely at that intersection of education and refugee and migrant experiences. Several years ago, in the face of a major influx of refugees from Syria, access to higher education for this population in Europe was a very hot topic. This discussion is less front and center today, but as you'll hear in our conversation with Bernhard Streitwieser, the needs of students of refugee background remain urgent and are global in scope. Bernhard, I am delighted to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you on our topic for today. And I'd like to start out with just a little bit of a, a personal probing question for you. How is it that you found your way into research on refugees in higher education? It's a, a, quite a specific area. I'm curious about what initially drew you into this area of inquiry. It's really, it's an easy answer. Um, my background spans Europe and specifically Germany as a German citizen and, and my place of birth. And then the US where I've lived since I was 10 and have received my academic training. So I have long-term interests and experience with both countries, both on a personal and a professional level. My training was in international and comparative education. And then I gradually segued into looking specifically at higher education as an area of focus with a comparative lens uh, at all times. And really only since about 2015 have I been focusing more and more on the question of refugees and what we call at-risk migrants. And this started with a study tour that I led my GW students on to Germany in 2016, looking at internationalization of higher education and Germany as a case study. At the time, many refugees were coming into Germany, primarily from Syria, and nearly every topic we addressed with policymakers and government and state-level officials and think tank people always came back to the topic of how are we going to manage this stream of refugees coming into our country, in Germany this is, and I realized that's a topic that really needs to be looked at in greater detail. So my, my focus at that point moved sort of from internationalization of higher ed to how is the higher education sector responding to a very specific uh, humanitarian crisis, if you will. And so I started looking at that and doing research on that. And then I sharpened that when I began a study group or a, a research group called the Berlin Refugee Research Group with colleagues in Germany. And then I took my students on a second study tour in 2019, specifically looking at integration of refugees in Germany. And we again talked to many, many, many high-level state 
federal think tank and, of course, university personnel and what they were doing in response. So my interest in this topic has grown and deepened and become more, more sort of nuanced and complex over time. But it's really something I you know, didn't know much about before about 2015. It's interesting. It makes me think of, you know, you're coming to this topic through problem-based learning, you know, and, and real life in, in engagement and, and encounters, which I think is really important um, and very exciting. So I know my next question is going to sound a, a little bit purposely heartless somehow, but I'm asking it really specifically in order to surface the very interesting why behind our topic today. And the question is, from your perspective, why is it important that refugees, as a specific category of prospective learner, have their access to higher education facilitated through specific mechanisms? What's the win-win story here that you think it's important for us to keep in mind? Right. I mean, I, I think you know a knee-jerk reaction or response would essentially be things that people would expect to hear, like research shows that skilled talent contributes to the economy. That's a fact. Another fact is that newcomers increase diversity in society. That's something we can all sort of understand on a simple level. Another idea is that helping them is the humanitarian right thing to do and needs to be seen as a human right. Education should be seen simply as a human right, not as a privilege. And that goes from primary to secondary to higher. So those, those are things which you'd sort of expect to hear. And I certainly believe and strongly agree with every one of those sentiments. But really, you know, there is so much happening when you just look at the question of migration and refugees within that on so many different levels in policy. You can look at it in, in great detail, administrative sort of responses to this increasing number and diversity of types of students coming into our education system, how to, how to work with them, how to understand them, how to give them the same opportunities. On the legal legislative level, there's so much to look at. So just a law, a law student would have a totally different set of obligations to look at this issue than, say, a sociologist or a psychiatrist would have a different perspective than a medical professional and an educator, again, has a different set of issues to look at. So really on a practical, but also academic and, and real world human level, there's just a, a, a massive amount of complexity when it comes to this topic. So, I mean, why is it important for me is, is the simple one that we have an obligation to our fellow human beings that they matter. And what I really like is the way the Germans talk about students who happen to have a refugee background, they call them students of refugee background. So not refugees who want to be students, but students, first and foremost, who happen to have come into this terrible situation of having to leave their country because it's no longer safe to be there and their lives are threatened. And they simply want to have a chance to continue their trajectory, you know, as sentient and, and hopefully successful human beings making a difference. So I think, you know, we can all agree on that fundamental reason that this matters and that supporting, you know, fellow human beings is a win-win for them and for us. Uh, Alan Goodman, uh, the president of the Institute of International Education, has really made a, an urgent plea that every higher education institution should just take one refugee student. If that happened, it would make a massive difference in, in their situation, whereas in reality, only about 3% of students with refugee background even ever get to make it into or back into higher education. So it's a tiny fraction of people who, who have that opportunity. A new program by the United Nations, the UNHCR, High Commissioner for Refugees, is that by 2030, 
this 3% turns into 15%. It's called 20, uh, 15 by 30 is what the name of the program is in short. But that, if you think about that, going from 3% to 15% is already a massive jump, but that is a goal, whether it's tangible is another question, but it is a goal being put out there by UNHCR. So, you know, there's progress in the right direction and, and the hope is that this really can happen. But right now, you know, the 30, 37% is the average of a people's access to higher education globally and refugees are 3%. So there's a massive hurdle. Giving them an opportunity will have a, an absolute impact and effect on all the rest of us having security and economic betterment and social improvements. And that is what I see as, as essentially the win-win. So many different layers there to explore, as you say, the complexities and the scope of things. Um, and the fact that we're just barely scratching the surface of provision to this particular population is really notable to me. That kind of gets me into my next question, which is a little bit of a, a current status question. At least in the European context, refugees have been quite out of the headlines over the last couple of years. And I was curious, as you think about that, as you think about other contexts around the world that you might be familiar with, what does that mean to you, sort of that lack of visibility at the moment? How should we understand the status of refugee students around the world at the moment? Yeah, uh, that, that's a great question, Laura, and I'm so glad you asked it, because I think probably nowadays, if you were to ask the person on the street, name where refugees might be coming from. Most people probably, if they know anything and have been reading any news, would say Syria, because that's the crisis that's gotten probably the most media and global media attention, uh, and for good reason. I mean, they've been in this horrendous civil war since 2011, and have more than 6 million uh, of their citizens have left, have fled the country because they're going to be killed if they stay, and there's their, their infrastructure is destroyed, the, the sectarian warfare gives them no safe haven. Uh, so they've either been displaced within their country or have left. However, uh, Syria is really only one of a number of really burning hotspots where you see also a massive exodus and tragedy of, of people leaving their country, people who never, I mean, nobody ever really wants to leave their country unless they have the right to travel and to see other places and engage and study abroad and mobility as very privileged students. Most people, in fact, don't want to leave their homeland, but you've seen that happen in massive numbers in Syria, as mentioned, but also, for example, in Venezuela, on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, in, in South America, there's been a huge exodus of Venezuelans. As many as 3.7 million have left in just the last couple of years. In Syria, it's been 6.6 .6 million. Then Afghanistan has seen a huge uh, exodus. Uh, 2.7 million Afghans have left. South Sudan, 2.2, and Myanmar, 1.1. Uh, the Rohingya crisis is another one I would say urgently needs attention, but we really don't hear so much about it, at least in, in this country, perhaps more on your uh, side of the Atlantic, Laura. But you know, the Rohingya is a massive tragedy where they have little to, to no rights. But just, just to give you, before I get into the different countries, just some broad statistics, about 75% of all displaced people in the world, which is about 1% of the global population, so 1% of the global population is displaced, means they can't be where they would like to be in their home. About 85% of those are in developing countries. This is countries essentially that don't really have the infrastructure and the financial sort of heft to actually successfully and happily incorporate these populations coming into their countries. They're struggling already, and this further increase in population only makes things harder. So about 85% are in developing countries. And as I mentioned, you know, these countries, Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Myanmar, 
68% of the refugees come from just those five countries. So almost two thirds or, or more than two thirds come from just those countries. And then the hosting countries that are taking most of these refugees and displaced people, many of them are also developed countries. As I mentioned, Turkey, Colombia, Pakistan, Uganda. The only country that's in the top five is Germany. That's, that's not a developing country. And then you know Germany and Canada are sort of standouts, Norway to some degree, Sweden to some degree, and the U.S. previous to the previous administration and maybe coming back now under our new president have been sort of models of, of, if you will, good citizenship, good behavior, good responses. But really, most refugees go to the neighboring countries for obvious reasons. They would like to return home as soon as possible, so they don't want to go too far away. So, you know, you you have this this major issue of, of where are they going to go and, you know, who's going to take them up? So, so to your question of, of you know what's in the headlines, you know we, we hear that the, the burning fires, the really hot fires, are Syria and you know I think Rohingya and Myanmar and Bangladesh to lesser extent Venezuela, but those countries are really dealing with really uh, very pressing crises. You know I don't think most of the European countries have lived up to their legal obligation within the um, Dublin Accords, where they really have to take a certain percentage of refugees to sort of live up to their their stated legal obligations. They have not done this in a way that would be equitable across the EU. And some countries have stepped in a lot more forcefully, Germany is an example, than others. But there's a lot of work where the, the leading industrial nations have really shirked their responsibility, if you will, and really not done what would be expected of them to, to play their role within, within you know, the, the political process that they essentially agreed to. So you've given us a lot of things to think about in terms of dynamics at the national level in different places around the world. And I was wondering, as you reflect on that, might there be a a national example or two that really stands out for you in terms of strong support or thoughtful mechanisms for refugee learners in higher education specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, again, my research is, is based on Germany and the U.S., so I know the German case probably best of all. But basically what I think has been most powerful in that context is that funding and support for programming directly targeted at helping refugees as a population has come from the highest levels. So Chancellor Angela Merkel basically got 100 million euros of funding allocated by the Ministry of Education and Research to create programming through the German Academic Exchange Service, the DAAD, for competitive grants that universities could apply to, to create specific programs to incorporate incoming refugee populations into higher education. So that's to say the government at the highest levels recognized that they have an opportunity. It's it's not a crisis and it's not a threat to their security or to their national identity, but it's an opportunity to create ways that this, you know, what was thought of as a well-educated population, Syrians were regarded as, as better educated than some other refugees had been in the past. I don't, there was some truth to that, though it was not completely correct. But they felt we can basically use, to use, to use a crude word, this population as skilled labor. And that will make an impact on our population, which is suffering from a low birth rate and an aging population. So they, they, I think Merkel, as is typical of her, was very, very pragmatic, coupled with, I would say, a real humanitarian impulse 
And, and I argue that that comes from possibly her growing up in the East. And, you know, if you look at pictures of Dresden destroyed after World War II, and you, you juxtapose those with different cities in Syria, it's striking. I mean, the, the devastation is, is almost on a par. And I think, you know, she might have, I mean, of course, devastation was throughout Germany, not just in the East. But um, I think her, both the education that she probably experienced in the East, plus what she grew up in, might have given her this more humanitarian orientation to thinking about rehabilitating Germany's image because of its, its you know, Third Reich background. And also that Germany, you know, on a pragmatic level had simply the finances. They had a, a surplus at the time to be able to really put money into supporting refugee opportunities in education or through education, if you will. So money basically is the deciding factor. And then I think a humanitarian goodwill orientation plays along into that. And then, you know, a good administrative structure that can actually make programming really happen, I think are the, the key ingredients. Canada, I would say under a Trudeau, in some ways similar. I think he does have a humanitarian orientation. He's expressed that in different statements he's made. And I think he also felt that, you know, Canada has an opportunity to do the right thing, if you will, and to um, and has the, the funds to, to be able to make it happen. So I think money, again, was the driving issue here. And I think, you know, the recognition that refugees are not refugees by their choosing. They had lives like the rest of us before their countries descended into chaos and forced them to flee for their lives. This is not their fault. You know, most want to become self-sufficient again. They don't want to feed off a system. This is based on my own interviews with many refugees. They, they really want to get an education as a pathway into good paying jobs so that they can contribute to their host societies. They're really hungry learners. And even if the smallest number I mentioned the 3% or what the UNHCR hopes will be 15% by 2030, you know, they want to make it back into self-sufficiency. And based on my studies of, of refugees, both in the US and in Germany, these are really the, the, what I would call the cream of the crop of their societies. They left when they saw the writing on the wall that things were not going to get better. They took a major risk leaving. So really, universities, to give these populations opportunity, need to give them access. And access starts with developing services that directly address their needs, like psychosocial counseling, extremely important. Uh, higher education institutions need trained or at least well-informed educators and administrators who are aware of this trauma and aware of the obstacles that refugees come from. Um, so we need to honor their resilience and we need to value them in the classroom and on our campuses and recognize that they have a benefit that's that's not just for them, but also really also is for us. And that's traditionally been shown. Research has shown that incorporating diverse and eager populations can really have a very positive impact on the economy and on the society if it's done right. And as we know, you know, today there's been sort of a reverse trend toward inward-looking anti-migration tendencies, xenophobia, you know, anti-globalization. So we're really up against that when we're talking about ways to incorporate these, these needy and deserving populations, but they can certainly be incorporated through programming and money and goodwill and training so they have to overcome you know, language barriers. In the case of Germany, Germany requires quite a high level of language competency to be at a university. They have to get their credentials verified and accepted. That's very complicated and very difficult, but it has to happen. They have to have information. What do they need to know to, to even navigate into higher education? How does that system work? What, are their, what is their place and, and opportunity within that? 
And then they need financial status. They need to be able to pay for some of these things. Even in low tuition or no tuition systems, all of those things have to sort of fall into place to give refugee populations opportunity. But yeah, my advice or really directive to higher education uh, practitioners would be that you can do this. It's imminently possible. It's the right thing to do. And there are ways to have your institutions create what are called complementary pathways that go in tandem with resettlement, where you can give them a door into the university with support that can be coupled together with different programs, with different stakeholders on campus who want to help. Many faculty and many students are actually driving efforts to help incorporate refugees. I've seen that in the U.S. and in Germany. And they need to have a goodwill orientation that this is simply the right thing to do, and it's certainly possible. These are really, really interesting and very tangible steps that can be taken and strategies that can be rolled out that would support these populations. I think we're also always very interested in the the research that goes behind this or helps support this kind of thinking. And I was just wondering if you might be able to allude to any new research in this area that we might be on the lookout for, either coming from you directly or from sources that you look to for important new insights. Yeah, I mean, there is a luckily, happily, an increase in sort of breadth and depth of research on the question of refugees and migrants and access to higher education. So that's happening. I think where we need more research is the voices of refugees themselves. We really, and, and that's been said by Sally Baker and uh, other scholars, Dryden Peterson, Jana Berg, other people that are doing work, me certainly, uh, Lucas Brick, other people have all said. This We need to hear the voices of refugees more than just sort of the scholars in the academy in the ivory tower doing this out of a research interest. They're you know, human beings who have something to say, and we need to hear from them, and they need to inform how we do this work and why it matters from their perspective. I, I certainly look at the... Uh, Forced Migration Listserv is very helpful. I get daily information from them. The journals, Journal of Refugee Studies, Journal of Immigrant and Refugee Studies are sort of the, the top journals I would, I would look to. Uh, there are many others that are also excellent. Those are just the ones I know from my own work. The Journal of Studies in International Ed has, I'm happy to say, published my own work in this regard. And I know they're looking at other research in that area, and I applaud them for that. It's very, very important. Same with the Comparative Education Review They've also taken this as an area where they're really interested. And then, of course, institutions like the Institute of International Education, IIE, is very important. Uh, The German Academic Exchange Service, the DAAD, is doing research in this area. You know, and then even the the bigger organizations you think of, the OECD, you know, World Bank, um, sort of multinational global players that are doing work in this area, Oxfam, International Rescue Committee, UNHCR, UN, UNESCO. You know, there are different players doing research and reports and articles and think pieces and uh, certainly programming that is focused on just the question of access for refugees and at-risk migrants into higher education, even though that population, as mentioned, is so small, 3%, but there is a great interest across the board of people doing this work who really see the value and the need to increase that number to at least 15%. Bernhard Streitwieser, thank you so much for bringing your energy and urgency and passion on the subject to share with us uh, some insights on the refugee situation in higher education. Thanks for this invitation, Dr. Rumbly. I really appreciate it. That was Bernhard 
Reinhard Streitwieser, an Associate Professor of International Education and International Affairs at the George Washington University, whose work focuses on the issues of policy and practice surrounding students of refugee background. Our session notes contain links to a series of resources connected to this topic, if you're interested in learning more, including information on UNHCR's 15 by 30 initiative that Bernhard mentioned in his chat with us. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. So what's next? It's hard to believe it's already June, but the weeks are ticking by quickly, and we do hope you're keeping up with some of the important events on the EAE calendar. Notably, registration for the EAE Community Exchange Virtual Conference and Exhibition is now open, with early bird registration closing on June 30th. Please book your place now. We've got a fabulous lineup of plenary speakers, sessions, and networking activities that we are sure you'll find very meaningful. Closer on the calendar is our next EAE Community Moment webcast. That airs on June 19th and features a conversation about what may be facing graduates during this challenging period when it comes to post-study employment. Please check out the EAA website at www.eaae.org for details on those events and more. The next podcast episode airs in two weeks' time. We hope you're subscribed to our series on your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss a single episode. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please share us and like us on social media. For now, thank you again for listening to the EAE podcast and all good wishes to you from the EAE.